have been studying the office. They're learning important things in school and helping them with their homework. The office is not part of their homework. This show is a show that I probably like too much, and in it, there's a, a man who named Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, and most of you know him, and if you don't, that just shows your psychological health, your sense of discretion and wisdom. But one of the things that makes Michael Scott so appealing is that he is profoundly devoid of self-awareness, and he has many aspects of his life that are very similar to ours, except that they're comically caricatured. So he takes a little something that might ruminate in us, and then they blow it up to exaggerated proportions, and it becomes comic and funny. That's how comedy works sometimes. And in one episode, his employee, Phyllis, is getting married, a celebratory event. And in an interview with the camera, Michael Scott says, it's about his employee, Phyllis is getting married today, and I am in the wedding party. She's asked me to push her father's wheelchair down the aisle. So basically, I'm co-giving away the bride. And since I pay her salary, it's like I'm also paying for the wedding, which I'm happy to do. It's a big day for Phyllis, but it's an even bigger day for me. Employer of the bride. I'm the employer of the bride. This is a big day for me. And as the hilarity ensues in this very sacred moment, the the, uh, prelude is playing and the entrance song for the bride is now happening and everyone's at attention and Michael's pushing her father, wheelchair-bound, down the aisle beside Phyllis and her lovely white dress, and near the end of the aisle, the father turns around to Michael and he says, stop, and he gets up, and everyone is shocked, it's touching, it's stirring, her father has practiced walking, and he's going to use this last little bit of strength that he can muster to walk his daughter down the aisle, and so fittingly, Michael Scott turns around and says, this is In America, when they say bleep, that means they said bad things. And he pulls that wheelchair back down the aisle, making all kinds of noise and racket. Because he has been upstaged at a wedding that was not his. He's furious and injured at a wedding that is not his because he got upstaged. Now, we're mature people. We'd say, how would you get upstaged? How could you be angry about being upstaged, about being shown up, about having your place diminished at a wedding that isn't yours? And that would seem so foreign to us, except that it happens all the time to us, just normally not at weddings. In the same way that We look at children sometimes and we see them screaming and throwing fits when they're little. 
And we realize, I, I feel the same way. I just learned to behave better, or at least to do it under my breath. This story of John the Baptist, at the beginning of John's gospel, you have an instance where people are coming to John and they're expecting an envious Michael Scott response. Because envy and jealousy, which is an aspect of it, are incredibly indigenous responses to all kinds of things where it seems like good is happening to another which for sure means that in this zero-sum universe, bad must be happening to us. If increase is happening to another, then I must be diminishing. If joy is happening to another, then I must be left with sorrow. And so we're told that John the Baptist is approached. He's been baptizing people, cleansing them for repentance of sins, calling people to repentance and... Now it turns out that Jesus on the other side of the Jordan is also baptizing people. Although we learn in the next chapter it wasn't actually him, but his disciples. But he's baptizing people. And so somebody comes to John and he says, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, just just two chapters earlier he had said, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the earth's contamination. The graviti on the soul, he pressure washes off of lives. Gets the mold out of the fabric of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world with his washing. And not only does he pardon us, but he brings this power. He says he has this phenomenal from the heavens power. I'm baptizing with water for cleansing. He's going to baptize with the very life of God. Creating personal Pentecosts in every little life. So that people can become like him. They can be altered. I'm not fit, he says, to scrape the gum from the bottom of his shoes. And this disciple comes to John the Baptist and he says, you testified about him. Well, let me tell you what's happening. He's baptizing now and everyone's going to him. Your wedding's being upstaged. He's walking down the aisle when you were supposed to be getting the credit for pushing the wheelchair. You're the employer of the bride. The disciple is telling him he expects a jealous response. He expects that this is going to be like any good pastor who hears about the success of a nearby church and learns, oh, what? We have a great big back door and all our people are leaving to go to that church where the pastor is infinitely more handsome and has better hair and they're and it preaches better and the programs are better and and they have air conditioning what <laughs> and he's, that's awesome and then you weep inside that's what they expected and john strangely doesn't even give off a whiff of jealousy or envy. And his reply tells you how he got there. And so it becomes an aspiration for us. So if you are someone who is prone to envy, 
And which is just to say, if you're here and your pulse is still going, check it. You're prone to it. And see, the thing about envy, or the thing about jealousy, which is an aspect of it, is that envy itself, as you've heard me say before, is the sin that makes you feel the most miserable. You know, all the other sins, so many of the other sins, are very pleasant. That's why you commit them. You don't commit gluttony. Like, I guess I'll have to eat all this terrible cookies and cream ice cream. (laughs) May as well be kale, but I'm going to choke it down somehow. This terrible sugar and rich, creamy awesomeness. No! And gluttony's fun. Anger is delicious. It feels good to be angry at somebody and to let it fly. At least for a moment, they have to deal with the aftermath. But envy feels horrible. In fact, with envy, you only feel happy at all the wrong times. Your only even hint, smudge of happiness comes at the sadness of somebody else, your rival. Aquinas called it sorrowing at another's good. Frederick Buechner said it's when you want everybody else to be just as miserable as you are. It's the dynamic that explains why the other day when I was on Interstate 24, which has become our own little miniature replica of Atlanta. I don't know what's happening. Dang gig city, we got too many cars now. And every time I'm on there, I get stuck, which means I'm not getting on there anymore. But I was stuck and nothing was happening. And I, I had intel from a certain woman in this congregation who told me she had seen a wreck. My wife, my wife. <laughs> had seen that there was a wreck. I gathered where the wreck was going. I figured out which direction it was going. I realized I can just get in the turn, the emergency lane. I'm in an emergency. Because <laughs> I don't like sitting here and I have to be somewhere. And we weren't moving at all. This is a terrible, terrible wreck. So I'm not making light of that. But I got in the emergency lane as did lots of people who figured out what was going on. I can be in the emergency lane for a short time and get where I need to go because all these other people are going the other way. They're stuck, and they're having to go that way. So as we went on the emergency lane, I'm driving through with a number of other people in front of me or behind me, and there was this kind man in a truck in the passenger side, and he was doing something with his hand. I I thought maybe it was like a... Like a one-fingered benediction. <laughs> he stuck out his hand as if to the heavens and pronounced his blessings on me with one finger outstretched. Blessings upon you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He must have been saying, and it wasn't just to me, he just left it lingering out there. <laughs> he was just keeping time with a bird that was going to fly away and drop on everyone. And I thought, every time I encounter such a thing, I think, yes, that makes total sense to people. It made total sense to him. It was the obvious thing. What else is he going to do except flip everybody off who's moving while he can't? Our moving had no effect on his moving. Zero. We weren't moving in spite of him or causing him not to. He just thought, because he's like me, it! if I'm going to be miserable... Everybody ought to be. 
Nobody should be happy if I'm sad. And nobody should be moving if I'm stuck. So blessings on you all. Bunch of somethings. So envy's no good. It feels awful. And wouldn't it be amazing to hear about someone who does what you do, your business, and to hear of their success and to be really genuinely happy for them? To hear of another mother, and you're reading this mom porn of these blogs of all the things that they did that day, and they lied about their life, and they curated it in such a way, and they, they make their own homemade macaroni and cheese with kale. <laughs> and their, their children's teeth don't break when they eat kale like everyone else's. Okay. Wouldn't it be great if you heard about the successes of another mother, and you thought, oh, that's so wonderful. Instead of feeling like, what, I hate her and myself. John hears about Jesus' flourishing ministry. Everyone is going to him, and he says, here's how I'm not envious, instead joyful. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. If you want an antibiotic for the strep of the soul called envy, here it is. Take this regularly. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Your life is a series of receptions from a gracious God who has intentions and assignments for you that may not be what your intentions for you are or what your assignments would wish to be, but they're driven by Herculean goodness. And so is the same for your neighbor and your coworker, and the teacher you teach with and the kids you go to school with. Heavenly receptions mark your life. And if you have ever had strep, because of my immune system, strep hits me harder than other things, and it's the most awful thing I, that happens to me sometimes. There are lots of awful things. It's fun. But you feel just terrible when a grown-up gets strep. And you need, you need an antibiotic. You need some way to antidote it. And so John tells us, here's how I've come at this. I have realized that my life has been given to me. He keeps going, as well as my calling. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. Now, just as a pause moment, some people have life verses, which is great. Here's a life verse that maybe, I have not seen anybody tattoo this on themselves, but they should. Covenant College students, you're thinking about a tat? You can do it in Greek. It'll be a great conversation starter. Right here, on your forearm, put, I am not the Christ. Put it on your mirror in the morning. What a self-reassuring thing to walk around in your day and you meet up with the exposures of your finitude. You can't get to everything and you feel like a louse. Instead of saying, my finitude is showing. When I was a kid, that's what kids would say. Hey, 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 your epidermis is showing. And they're like, what does that mean? 
You've got a garment on your back? They were exploiting the lack of vocabulary knowledge. And sometimes your finitude is showing, just like your epidermis. Your skin, kids, skin. And sometimes you, your finitude is showing. You can't get everywhere at once. You can't do all the things you think you ought to do. You can't finish in a day what you think you ought to be able to finish in a day to make sure that everyone thinks that you're magnificent. There's, you can do all the things that need to be done. You just can't do all the things that make everybody think that you are God's gift to the world. And in those moments, you might say to yourself, as you look down at your new tat that's healing, I am not the Christ. And you get on the other side. I am not the Christ. Maybe put it on your forehead. But I am not the Christ. And John thinks this is a joyful thing, not a mournful one. It's not singing the blues. It's delighting in reality. I'm not the Christ. Like Jim Carrey in his moment of relief when he's not God anymore. I don't want to be God anymore. What a relief of surrender that is. And so John is saying, here's how I fight the envy. Here's how I fight the jealousy that's so normal to people. I realize everything that comes to me is received as a heavenly reception, and I have been given a task, and I am not the Christ. I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. I ain't trying to steal the show. Michael Scott was trying to steal the show. Because he wants life. Because he wants to be loved. Because he wants to matter. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. But that joy is mine now. And it complete it is. He must become greater and I must become less. When you start to believe that a person, a woman, a child, a man, can only receive what has been given them from heaven, it starts to take the pressure off. And it starts to reorient you to your life in a new kind of way. It becomes an antidote to all kinds of issues and problems that we have. The problems of overwhelmedness. Are you in a job that's too hard for you? Like being married? Or a job that you don't like so much? Or maybe you are in classes that you don't love so very much? Like all of them? You know what happens in the scriptures? You see people who realize that they have endowments and gifts, callings, assignments from the heavens. Though it may seem as if they picked them, these things have been entrusted to them. And so you know what that means? If you can only receive what's been given you from heaven, and the implication for John is, I've received one calling, Jesus has received another. Things are playing out as they ought. Then one of the things you do when you feel overwhelmed is you realize, if I need competencies, if I'm in a state of deficit, then I need to talk to him who is in a state of surplus all the time. I can only receive what is given me from heaven. So King David as a warrior, appeals to the divine warrior and says, Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for battle. The warrior depends on the divine warrior for the skill he needs to do his craft, to carry out his assignment in the world. Why can't a carpenter or a banker or a nurse or a mom do the same? 
I don't know how to be a mom in this situation. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these technology decisions. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this job that I've been given. I hate this class. But you are the one who trains my hands for battle. And if he'll train your hand, perhaps he can train your heart. Oh, Lord, will you alter my attitude that I might be able to do what you've placed me here to do? See, our thought is, everywhere else that I'm not is somewhere better. Every job I've not got is the better one. I know there's a better job out there for me by virtue of the fact that I have this one. What if God put you there? In whatever station you're in. And your competence comes from Him. The Apostle Paul recognizes these similar kinds of things about endowments. And he says, the, to each one, this manifestation of God's Spirit is given for the common good. And God has assigned and arranged all the parts of the body just as He determined. And if you're on the Lenten prayer, daily prayer that came, I think the one this morning is about the potter and the clay, the idea that God is our celestial potter and we are fashioned clay according to what he thinks is best. There's a kind of relief and joy that comes when we let down for a minute and say, perhaps God knows things that I don't. You know, being above all and from heaven and all that. Maybe his assignments in my life, maybe the places where I've landed, maybe the family that I'm a part of, the job that I'm a part of, the friends that I'm a part of, maybe these have been given to me from heaven, and so now I need to appeal for the competencies and the attitudes and the ways to interact within them. And if you start thinking like this, you know you also will even have a way to deal with some of your aggravations. It occurred to me reading Esther not too long ago. The one book of the Bible, I believe, where the name of God is not mentioned, but he is everywhere. That one night, the king, who kicks off a series of events that gets the Jews saved from a sure genocide, cannot sleep. And it just struck me heartily in that moment, wait a what? At just the right time, the king was not able to get to sleep that night. And so he had, of all things, a history read to him. Well, of course, he wanted to get to sleep. And that's where he learned of Mordecai, the need to honor him because of his heroic efforts earlier in his reign. And it occurred to me, a king couldn't sleep, so the Jews got saved. That's pretty cool. Next time you're not able to sleep, maybe God has something in it for you or for someone else. And maybe you talk to him about that. And if you start to believe also that you can only receive what's given you from heaven, that you have been given assignments, you have been placed in places, it might also help you not shrink back. There's a crisis of confidence among a great number of us where you are in situations and it's hard to move forward. You want to shrink back. It's hard to assert yourself for fear 
of being found out. I had a great conversation with Joe Novenson early, 17 years ago, where I said, you know, something to the effect of, I think I've tricked all these people into hiring me, and I'd probably be a much better shoe salesman than a pastor and all these kinds of things. And I just said, I read, I read all these things. I know all the things that pastors say. I hear all the things that pastors do. And I know what Tim Keller's all about. And I see what Randy Pope's all about. And I read these things and I think I definitely should not be a pastor. I can't be any of those guys. And I got all these friends who are pastors and I can't be any of them either. So maybe I'm misfitted. And he said, being friends with Randy Pope and Tim Keller and all that, he said, you know, many years ago I had the realization, startling realization, that in the, in the business world there was this, at the time, I guess in the 80s, there was this, this category called the strong natural leader, an SNL, strong natural leader. You know the type. Clear, driven, strong in executive steel, uh, skills and executive style here. Ready planning, charismatic, people are fawning to be near them. None of those things describe me except for the hair. Just kidding. That's all from a Dilbert comic. Every time you hear me say executive style hair, it's from a Dilbert comic 30 years ago. Look it up. But he said, I realized the Lord revealed to me, I realized somewhere along the way that my calling in the kingdom of God was not to be a strong natural leader, but to be instead of an SNL, a TNL, a transparent nerdy leader. And I thought, now that, I can aspire to that. A transparent nerdy leader, that's something to work on. That's a, a manner that I might be able one day with practice to inhabit. And some of you won't step up, won't speak up, won't give yourselves to things that you should, that you would be a benefit to somebody, that Christ would do good to somebody through because you're, because you're not sure, because you're nerdy. Or because you don't think you have the words. Or because you don't think you have what it takes. Early in the first season of The Crown, when a young Queen Elizabeth II... Now, I assume all this is perfectly historically accurate. They just took all this from her diary. Diary. And this young Queen becomes... Queen, and her father has died prematurely. She was never counting to be queen, not, not at this age. And there are these decisions around her that are abounding, and everybody around her is trying to push her. People with much stronger opinions, with much more wisdom, with much more knowledge, with much more know-how, apparently, and they're pressuring her, and there's some decision to be made. And she says to her husband, who is pressuring her in this moment, Prince Philip, she says, I am aware that I am surrounded by people who feel that they could do the job better. Strong people with powerful characters, more natural leaders, 
perhaps better suited for leading from the front, making a mark. But for better or for worse, the crown has landed on my head. And I say we go. The Queen has a lot of drop the mic moments. A lot of British royalty drop the encrusted in diamonds mic moments. I know that everybody could do this better than me, so they think. But guess what? By providence, by the receipt of heaven, the crown has landed on this little head. And that means so has the responsibility to decide, to take the risk, to trust, to act. Oh, what joy it is if you believe that where you've been situated is part of your calling. The family you're a part of is part of your calling. The gifts and abilities and ways that you are are part of your calling and they've been given to you from heaven, just like your friends and just like the people around you. And you don't have to be jealous about that. You can... You can rejoice in that. What has landed on your head? John assures that by realizing these things, that now he knows joy. Because he's doing the part that's been given to him, not another's part. And he realizes that my goal was to link up Jesus with his bride, Israel, or now the church. That was my job. I was a voice, heralding, inviting, summoning, issuing invitations, waiting till he comes. And then when he comes, my job, like Michael Scott's job should have been, is to get out of the way and let people enjoy the coming together of the groom with the bride. And so my joy is complete as I am relieved of the duty and the sucking need to make a name for myself. See, most of the time we think we fight envy by leveling other people. But what if you fight envy by saying, I'm not going to do anything but try to be grateful for what comes to them and realize that what comes to me is what's needed for me. As John finishes out, I'm going to go right down to the bottom as we, for our closing thing. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John has a sense of urgency all the time in this book, which he has written that you, life seekers, might keep finding life in Jesus. Our world right now is promising words from the earth that offer life. People want life. And John says, I've written this book at the end that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. There are hucksters of life every place. But John said you need to listen to the one who comes from heaven, and he gives his spirit without limit. That to receive him is to come alive, is to be chock full of vitality, is to have things 
opened up and your world expanded and your cramped little soul enlarged. To pretend you don't hear or to say, who really knows what's true? John's not into your epistemic agnosticism. It's too mysterious. Who could really know? John would say, it's rejection. Here is the Christ, and he has life. If you take him, you'll have it too. If you turn your back on him, if you dally around, you're rejecting him, and the wrath of God remains on you. Then there are serious words. But here's what's hopeful. At a funeral I was at on Friday, a terrible, extra terrible kind of funeral because it was for Mallory Balshan. And Robbie Holt did the service and he was quoting Peter, her husband, a young husband, I think maybe of six years, and they have three children under six. And mom's no more and wife's no more and Robbie was talking to Peter, and Peter said, Robbie, we were terrible Christians. That's what he said. We were terrible Christians. We're terrible Christians. And Robbie said, I doubt that. Because Robbie knew, and it reminds me of Walker Percy when asked, what kind of Catholic are you? A bad one, he said. A bad Catholic. Robbie said, you know, the proud get nothing and the humble get everything. The meek inherit the earth. There's nobody who gets far along in this venture of being people who have been rescued from the coming wrath and who are clinging to the one who gives life. You don't get to the point where you think, I'm pretty good at this now. If you do, you've misapprehended your whole sense of things. You've misunderstood. You don't ever get to the point where you say, I am now really good at being a Christian. You might say, I'm really good at being a bad Christian. Or I'm really good at being needy and transparent and nerdy. I'm getting better at that. You saw the story about Mr. Rogers. Imagine me with a cardigan and about a third of my size. And nice. And Mr. Rogers, when he was in seminary, he was an ordained minister, was on vacation. He had been taking a homiletics class, a preaching class, and he was sitting in this little country church with an 80-year-old pastor, and the whole time he was taking marks how the pastor was screwing up, much like you would have many causes to do. You're doing that wrong. He's doing that wrong. No discernible order to anything. And he was clicking off and judging scrutinizing the delivery and the sermon and its content. And when that, he said, interminable sermon ended, I looked over at my friend to whom I was going to share all my wise judgments. And I noticed that she had tears streaming down her face. And it was then that I first began to understand the personal nature of the Holy Spirit that I had come into the sermon with judging, and she had come in with needing. She said, he said today exactly what I needed to hear. 
I came in standing above him as his master. She came in as a pupil. I came in with judging. She came in with need. And the Holy Spirit responded to her need, not to the judging. What a magnificent religion this is. That the life of God will be poured out to people who know they don't deserve the life of God. For people who realize once again, here I am, trying to increase and being jealous of the increase of others. Oh, Lord Jesus, pour out your life on me. Here I am, being grumpy and unsatisfied with what you've handed over to me. Oh, Lord Jesus, fill me again and cleanse me and change me. Here I am again, shrinking when I should be standing, silent when I should speak, speaking when I should be silent, envious, angry, gluttonous, proud, in need. To a spirit that comes without measure. Because God is not stingy. There's a great joy in the needy powerlessness of that. And you get to keep coming back with all your deficit to the God who only has surplus. And will give the spirit without limit. Come to him over and over again. Amen.